Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Good morning, and welcome to service this morning. We're going to finish out Romans chapter 2. That being said, I'd like to say that um, you see this on my finger, the wedding ring that I'm wearing. It's not the same one that Hannah placed on my finger on our wedding day. Now, not that long ago, I um, went to Southern California for a conference, and I managed to forget my wedding ring at the hotel that I was staying. And obviously, that ring was an important symbol of the relationship that I have with my wife. But during the time that I wasn't wearing that ring, it certainly didn't mean that we weren't married nor did it change the essence of our marriage relationship in that way. And so this morning, I want to kind of lean into that about the relationships that we have. Now, conversely, while the replacement ring that I wear this morning is an important symbol of our marriage relationship, that external symbol in and of itself does not automatically convey the reality of our relationship. It is, as we often see in our culture today, that it is possible for a man or a woman to wear a wedding ring while violating the marriage relationship. Okay? So, we see that while symbols do have value... The mere ritual of displaying those symbols is not nearly as important as the reality of the underlying relationship they represent. So, I think it would be fair to say that ritual that rejects relationship is pointless. Ritual that rejects relationship is pointless. However, ritual that reflects relationship is priceless. So one that rejects relationship is, is pointless. But if it reflects the relationship, it is priceless. Now, although because rings are made most of the time with precious metals, a wedding ring does have some intrinsic value. What makes it priceless to me is that it reflects the reality of the relationship I have with Hannah. Now, as we're going to find this morning, the principle is also true when it comes to yours and my relationship with God. And as we wrap up our study of Romans chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see that Paul continues to address his fellow Jews and show them why they need the gospel just as much as the pagan Gentiles. In this chapter, Paul has been pointing out the hypocrisy of the Jews who claim to know God and his word, but they failed to live according to the light that they had been given. And so he's going to conclude in this chapter by addressing one more area in, in, in which their hypocrisy was evident. A, a particular religious ritual that had lost its meaning because they had abandoned their relationship that gave meaning to that ritual. 
So I'd ask this morning that you would turn with me to Romans chapter 2 and follow along as I begin reading in verse 25. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's message to his fellow Jews in this passage is exactly the same principle that I applied to my wedding ring. Ritual that rejects relationship is pointless. Ritual that reflects relationship is priceless. For many of us, the word ritual probably has a negative connotation. But not all religious rituals are bad or harmful. In fact, as we will see this morning, God has expressly given us some of those rituals that he wants us to engage in. The real issue, as we'll see, is our motivation for participating in them. Paul has already addressed several things that the Jews thought provided them with uh, a special privilege that meant they didn't need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one by one, Paul had rejected those ideas. The Jews could not depend on their heritage to excuse them for their need for the gospel, just because they were born as a descendant of Abraham did not exempt them from God's judgment. We talked a lot about that last week. They couldn't depend on their knowledge to excuse them from their need for the gospel. And just because they had the scriptures and they listened to them and they had taught them on a consistent basis did not excuse them from the fact that their actions weren't consistent with what they knew. They couldn't depend on their words to excuse them. And just because they were able to teach others what they knew intellectually, it didn't excuse them from the behavior which didn't line up with what they are teaching. But these Jews, they had one final, what they would call an ace in the hole, they, or so they thought, their circumcision. They had been consistently taught by the religious leaders that the physical act of circumcision was their ticket to heaven. Later, Jewish writings reflect the teachings that would have been typical in the synagogues of Paul's day, and in those writings, we find these teachings related to circumcision. Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. And it is taught that circumcision saves from hell. 
It is also taught that Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. So in reality here, it's really hard to blame the Jews from thinking that if circumcision was going to save them from hell, they really didn't need the gospel. But you see, Paul uses this section of this letter to remind them that, again, ritual that rejects relationship is pointless. But ritual that reflects it is very much priceless. Now, unfortunately, the Jews had lost sight of the relationship that gave meaning to the physical act of circumcision. And as a result of that, the religious ritual had actually become pointless. It had no value in God's eyes. But Paul gives us a hint here that this really didn't have to be the case. In verse 25, he starts this section by pointing out that circumcision does not have great value. That is, unless it's accompanied by obedience to the law. But if it is merely a ritual that does not flow out of a personal relationship to God, in which God transforms hearts and gives the desire and ability to live a life of obedience to him, then it really has no value at all to God. My guess is that many of us this morning are already thinking that this passage really doesn't apply to us because we really don't engage in a whole lot of religious rituals. So I'm going to do my best this morning to show all of us that we do engage in a lot more religious rituals than we might actually think. I'm going to suggest that some ways that we can maybe help uh, ensure that we do engage in those rituals in a way that makes appropriate connections to the underlining relationship that gives them meaning and value so that they will be priceless and not pointless. Now, when it comes to religious rituals, there are two broad categories that we need to consider. First, rituals that are expressly given by God, and secondly, those that are not. Into which of those two categories do we think circumcision would fit? Well, if you answered that it is expressly given by God, then you're correct. And it says so way back in Genesis chapter 17, and we'll be going there in just a second. But what would be some other examples of some other religious rituals that were expressly given to the Jews by God? Well, we know of a few. The Passover and the six other feasts that they participated in. Also, the sacrifices. Those were rituals that they, it was expressly given by God. So, what would be some examples of religious rituals that were practiced by the Jews that were not expressly given by God? first one that comes to mind is Hanukkah. Uh, all the man-made laws that had been added 
to the scriptures. So let's bring this forward to today and maybe how it applies to us as believers. What are the religious rituals that have been expressly given to us as followers of Jesus by God? We participate in two on this campus. One is baptism. The second is the Lord's Supper. And though we are Baptists, we do not have a third. Potlucks are not part of these rituals that are expressly given by God, even though we certainly like to participate in them. But we're going to discover this morning that for those who have accepted the gospel of Jesus, these two rituals have actually replaced the Old Testament rituals of circumcision and Passover. And finally, what are some examples of religious rituals in which Christians or those who call themselves Christians might engage in that are definitely not expressly given to us by God? I know of a few. How about Christmas? Easter? Any other holiday? Uh, the confession to a priest, uh, the rosary beads, Hail Marys, etc., etc., etc. So can you see now that as Christians, we actually do engage in religious rituals a lot more than we might think at first glance? That by itself is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. As we have already suggested with our main theme for this morning, whether those rituals are pointless or priceless has to do with how well they reflect our underlying relationship with God. So let's use our remaining time this morning to discuss how to make sure our religious rituals are priceless and not pointless. First, how do we make our rituals priceless? Well, my original plan this morning was to cover both kinds of those rituals, those expressly given by God and, and of course, those which are not. But as I worked out through the message, it became apparent uh, pretty quickly that you didn't want to sit here until uh, 5 o'clock this evening. So, uh, we won't have time to cover all of that this morning. So we'll use at least part of our time to address the rituals that have not been expressly given by God. Things like Christmas, Easter, etc. So this morning, we will be limited to the rituals expressly given by God. Now, this is the issue that Paul is dealing directly with here. Circumcision was a ritual that, as we see clearly in a moment here, was expressly given by God. And when that act was accompanied by obedience to God's word, which provides evidence of genuine faith, it clearly has great value. But as Paul states in the last part of verse 25, if a circumcised Jew disobeys the law his circumcision actually becomes uncircumcision with the clear implication 
being that in the case circumcision is of no value. So obviously the act of circumcision itself, just like any other religious ritual, has no value in God's eyes unless it is accompanied by the action that gives evidence of genuine faith. Now on the other hand, if a uncircumcised pagan Gentile actually keeps the law, God will consider him to be circumcised in a spiritual sense. And as we'll see more fully in just a moment, at least one purpose of circumcision was to identify that someone belonged to God. And Paul is making it clear here that identification with God has a lot more to do with a person's overall obedience to God than it really does with some religious ritual. So, in verses 28 and 29, Paul closes out this chapter by identifying four traits of a real Jew. Here in those verses, Paul is clearly using the term Jew not as a description of a race or even a religion, but rather as a term to describe those who are truly God's chosen people. And those four traits provide us with four ways that we can make sure that our rituals truly reflect our underlining relationship with God and which therefore ensure that those rituals are priceless. First of all, we need to focus on the inward and not the outward. The Jews mistakenly thought that the outward action of circumcision somehow gave them a free ticket to heaven. But as we've seen frequently here in Romans, God is a lot more interested in the inward reality of our lives rather than the outward facade that we give off. There's obviously nothing inherently wrong with engaging in rituals which required our outward physical participation. Let me make that clear again. This is nothing wrong. There is nothing inherently wrong with engaging in rituals which require our outward physical participation. It is only when we put all the focus on the outward, the, the, the outward act that we're portraying, rather than the inner reality that we actually have a problem. Since this is a crucial issue, Paul addresses it again from a uh, slightly different angle. Because he says to focus on the heart and not the flesh. Now, this is really just another way of emphasizing the need to focus on the inward rather than the outward. But according to Paul, the real Jew is not one who just engages in some external ritual in the flesh, but rather one who has a spiritual heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, while the Jews continued to unfailingly participate in the physical act of circumcision, 
They had completely forgotten the heart of God and why he had established that ritual in the first place. And until their hearts were made right by restoring God's purposes for circumcision, the act itself would continue to be pointless. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 17 and see what God's purpose was when he first established the act of circumcision. So Genesis chapter 17, I'm going to start in verse 10 and read 11 as well. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The primary purpose of circumcision was to identify the Jews as those whom God had established his covenant and who therefore belonged to him. It was to be a reminder of what they were to be set apart from, uh, the other peoples around them, in a way that would be evidenced by the way that they lived their lives. It is instructive to note the timing of God's um, initiation of this ritual. First, we see that it comes after God had credited Abram with his righteousness because of Abram's faith. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6. So that means that circumcision was an outward demonstration of and testimony to the relationship that Abram already had with God as a result of his faith. We do things out of faith. We are told to trust God in all circumstances because God will put forth opportunities for us to display that faith. And that's what it's saying here as well. We also see that the ritual of circumcision was first given by God over 500 years before he gave the law to Moses. Under the Mosaic law, circumcision took on an additional meaning because it also signified membership in the covenant community that uh, uh, merely reinforced its purpose as a reminder of the need to be set apart and morally pure. But unfortunately, by the time Paul wrote his letter, circumcision had become the symbol of Jewish superiority. Rather than reminding them of their responsibilities toward God, the Jews regarded it as a symbol of privilege, which they mistakenly thought excused them from their need for the gospel. Now, let's think about how all of this is relevant to us today. And when it comes to the two rituals God has given us here in this church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Interest, 
This is very interesting. Baptism serves much the same purpose in the church that circumcision did among the Jews. It is an outward act that reflects a relationship with God that has already been established through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a symbol of our membership in the covenant community that we call the church. And perhaps most importantly, in light of this morning's passage, it is a mark that identifies us as belonging to Jesus, which reminds us of our need to be set apart from the world around us by the way we live our lives. Without our relationship with God and all those accompanying realities, being baptized merely gets us wet. Baptism by itself doesn't make us right with God or extend any kind of privilege to us any more than the physical act of circumcision did for the Jews. On the other hand, baptism, just like circumcision did for the Jews, does have great value when it is done as an act of obedience, which demonstrates that we have a heart for God and the things of God, and that our faith is genuine. Although I cannot make the case from the Bible that baptism is required for salvation, I do know this. It was important enough to Jesus that he both participated in the act uh, personally as an example for us as well as commanded his followers to do the same. So I have a hard time understanding why any genuine believer would refuse engagement in scriptural baptism. Because of what Jesus did while observing the Passover meal the night before his crucifixion, the Lord's Supper serves the same purpose for Christians that the Passover did for the Jews. The physical act of taking the bread and the cup serves as a reminder of what God has done for us by freeing us from sin through the death and resurrection of his son. And it is also important that our participation in the Lord's Supper be done with a right heart. One that recognizes what Jesus has done for us and that desires to be obedient to him out of gratefulness for the sacrifice he made on our behalf. And since we'll be observing the Lord's Supper in two to three weeks, we'll have a chance to explore its underlying meaning in more detail then. And both myself and Pastor Martin have preached on the subject on numerous occasions. Thirdly here, Paul says we need to rely on the spirit and not the letter. Now this is the essence of what Paul has been saying throughout this chapter. The Jews thought that because they had obeyed the letter of the law, especially when it came to circumcision, that they really didn't need the gospel or a savior. 
But the same scripture in these uh, Jews claimed to know so well consistently pointed to an, uh, an importance of relying on God's spirit rather than their obedience to the letter of the law. And here's what God had to say to the Jews hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice here that it is God who is doing all of the work here. He is the one who will give a new heart. He is the one who will put his spirit within his people. He is the one who is going to remove the heart of stone and replace it with a new heart. And the reason God is going to do that is so that his people will be equipped to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. But unfortunately, the Jews had missed out on the importance of the new heart and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they were willing to settle for a physical act that was meaningless without that new heart. And as we've already seen here this morning in Romans, the only way to get that new heart was by responding to the gospel by faith in Jesus alone. In Jesus alone. The one thing that so many of these Jews refused to do. Unfortunately, I know we all have seen people who claim to be Christians and they do the same thing with baptism and the Lord's Supper. They, they claim to be a Christian, participate in these rituals and expect that to be enough. When there is no underlining relationship with God, all of these things, all of these things are pointless. And the fourth and final thing that Paul tells us we should do is we need to seek God's praise, not man's praise. There is a really interesting wordplay in verse 29 if you look at it. But that, do, that just doesn't come through in our English translation very well. And as I talked to you about it last week, the word Jew is derived from the name Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. If you go to Genesis 29.35, you can see that the name Judah means praised. So in verse 29, Paul is saying that a real Jew or a real praised one is one whose praise comes from God and not from man. Here Paul is dealing with our motivation for engaging in religious rituals. If I'm doing that because it pleases God, 
then that ritual, it will reflect the underlining relationship that I have with God, and that alone makes it priceless. But if my motivation is to do something that will benefit me, or will somehow make me look better, then that same participation will become pointless. Now, unfortunately, over the years, we've observed people participate in both baptisms and the Lord's Supper because they were more worried about what others thought than what God thought. I've seen people decide to get baptized because their best friend was getting baptized or because someone else in the church was doing it and they they didn't want to be left out. I've observed people taking the bread and the cup during the Lord's Supper because they didn't want to see them pass on taking the elements, even though people around them knew they weren't believers. And in each of those cases, their participation in those rituals was pointless, not priceless. As I conclude this morning, let me go back to the illustration of my wedding ring. Let's suppose, and this is a big suppose, that I had never lost that ring or never taken it off my finger. I wish I could have done that. But unfortunately, I am a male, and males, when we leave things somewhere, we tend to lose them. That's just the nature, and I think it's God's joke on all men sometimes, but we, we lose things. But let's, let's just say that I'd never lost it, and I'd never taken it off my finger. But let's suppose that while I was wearing that ring constantly, I had become a cruel and unfaithful husband. And one day Hannah reached her breaking point and came to me and said, You have ceased to be a loving and faithful husband. You have become a cruel tyrant who cares only for himself and not at all for me. I want you to leave. How do you think she would feel if I responded by saying, How dare you complain? I'm wearing the same wedding ring you put on my finger on our wedding day, and I've never taken it off. Not once. Sure, I've mistreated you and cheated on you, but I was always wearing this ring. Now that sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? But isn't that exactly what we're doing with God? When we engage in the symbols he has given us while at the same time completely disregarding his purposes, plans, and ways. It's no different. When we focus our energy on the outward things of life, we miss out on the deepening relationship we can have with God if we focused on the inward things. Ritual that rejects relationship is pointless. 
but the ritual that reflects relationship, that honors God, that honors those around us, that is priceless. What are we doing in our lives to make sure that the rituals that we participate in make them priceless. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you've given us life that we could serve and honor you. Lord, too often we get caught up in the rituals that we participate in because it gives the outward appearance that we've got it all together, that we're living the life as a Christian, that we're living a life according to your ways and your word. But Lord, that's not always the reality. There are many of those that give that outward appearance of having it all together, but Lord, they don't. They desperately need to have that inward relationship with you. Lord, I pray this morning that if there is someone listening today that does not have that relationship with you, I pray that moment happens now. I pray that they surrender themselves fully to your gospel. That they will see you as you would have them see you. Lord, I thank you for the many times that you've blessed our church, our families, even in this time of uh, struggle. Lord, we know that you will be honored through all of it. Thank you for our time together. Lord, we look forward to joining together again in service as we do what we do best, love and honor you. We give you this day, and we give you every day. And it's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now, and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.